Hi, my name is Lloyd Sarbutz, and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this episode, I welcome writer and editor Koa Beck and financial journalist and author Katrine Marcel as we discuss Koa's new book, White Feminism, From the Suffragettes to Influencers and Who They Leave Behind. Koa's book is a wide-ranging sweep of feminist ideology and the pursuit of equality for people of colour, non-binary and queer statuses. Koa and Katrine dive into a critical examination of how capitalism's focus on the individual is inhibiting progress towards true equality for the collective. I hope you enjoy. Hi, thank you um, so much, um, Lloyd, for that introduction, and thank you, Koa, for for speaking with me. I, I, yeah, I think this is this is such an important book, and I'm really glad you're all here to to listen to to us discuss the ideas in this book because it's it's an important correction of a lot of things. I just feel it would be nice if people would like to introduce themselves briefly in the chat, just say hi and you know where you're calling in from. That would just be nice. I'm one of those people who like to sort of see see the chat while I'm while I'm talking because it, it makes me feel like I'm not all alone just here in the, in, in this room. Um, Kurt, you were the perfect author for this book, I felt, um, and particularly because of your the career you've had and the field you've you've been in during your career. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Because I do think that's that's relevant. Yes, and thank you very much to you, Katrine and Lloyd and Libraria and Second Home for having me. It's really incredible, especially, you know, in the midst of this national pandemic that we can meet like this and talk across country and time and space. It's really a remarkable feat considering everything that's going on. Um, Per Katrine's question, um, my career has been in mainstream women's media in the United States. I've worked in uh, traditional women's media for 10 years. Um, I was an editor at Mary Claire, I was executive editor at Vogue, and then most recently, I was editor in chief of Jezebel, which I stepped down um, to do this book. Um, And uh, it really means a lot getting that type of flattery and recognition from Katrine, because she's a thinker who I admire very much. And prior to, you know, me actually getting the opportunity to cite her work in white feminism, um, I came to her book, you know, as a curious reader about feminist economics. So if you are interested in my book, I highly recommend that you read hers, um, because it really uncomplicates a lot of economic viewpoints that disadvantage women. So we have, thank you for introducing yourselves in the comments. We have people from London, we have people from Virginia. We have Shannon, who's writing something, a student paper about, for a school paper about this event. Oh, so that's quite exciting. Cool. Hi, Shannon. Good um, luck, Shannon. <laughs> we have Alice from my home country, Sweden as well. So people from Canada. So great, great that you're all here. <laughs> we, need, we need to start with some definitions. So what's, what's white feminism? I define white feminism very early in the book, in the introduction, very intentionally uh, to give people a working definition of what I'm talking about and also something that they can then take from the book and trace, you know, in their own life and recognize in real time, which was something I really wanted to leave the reader with. 
I define white feminism as a very specific approach and ideology towards achieving gender equality that pulls very heavily from colonialism, imperialism, some key pieces of white supremacy as well. Um, but also, I think its biggest signature is that it gauges, quote unquote, feminist wins or feminist progress on individual accumulation of wealth and individual ascension. And you talk about how for the women of means, in the feminist movement, they viewed the men in their lives, their husbands, brothers and sons, as the template for their own equality. Yeah, very, very, very much so in, in the sense that I feel like, um, you know, while the American suffragists were very upfront and literal about that, you know, in terms of drafting, you know, economic equality even, or just gender equality broadly, um, even through, you know, now, and like a lot of newsrooms I've passed through, you know, where we're covering gender rights or gender progress, I see this happen again and again, this idea that the ultimate goal is that you want to be your husband, or like you want to be, you know, your dad in terms of the power he has, either like within your family unit, or if he owns a company, or he's like a head of a certain department, um, and he has sort of all these underlings that do everything everything for him, whether those are other women or not. <laughs> so, so just to be clear, just, just with the definitions, you don't have to be white to be a white feminist, right? I don't think so. And actually, um, I find that, you know, in the last probably like three or four years of my career and being, you know, uh, um, privy to a lot of national conversations and in some ways like organizing contributions to national conversations, um, I found that to be a misunderstanding, you know, that I bumped up against a lot in that I feel like what white feminism has successfully accomplished as an ideology in the United States is that it's been able to export its um, limited idea of feminism to many women, you know, whether they're of color, working class, queer, um, in that you're supposed to essentially aspire to whiteness to be seen by this movement. You're supposed to want to have a, you know, senior um, leadership position to be seen by this movement. You're supposed to want to be married to a partner who also, you know, changes diapers with you. Um, if you're, say, like a domestic worker and you just want to be a domestic worker who, you know, is paid fairly and gets time off and is not harassed in your job, you are not seen in white feminism. And more importantly, white feminism makes it abundantly clear that they don't want to see you. Mm -hmm. And it's all about individualism and individual achievement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, um, I think meritocracy has been really adapted in white feminism, um, even from the, you know, ground up in terms of very early in the United States, where I trace this ideology. Um, you know, a lot of those suffragists who were middle to upper class, they started with things like education and business. They didn't start with things like food security or affordable housing or healthcare or, you know, anything like that. Um, and that's because, you know, for a lot of those women who were conceiving of gender equality, they had a basic standard of living already. Um, so that was not foundational to their understanding of gender equality. Mm -hmm. But they also, it's not just that it was not in their experience. I mean, you describe how women with different experiences were intentionally shut out. Can you speak a little mm -hmm. bit about that? Yeah, very much so in terms of um, optics and presenting like who 
you know, feminism was for, or more importantly, I think like who you're supposed to think of when you think of feminism. Um, I track in the book, the efforts of a very well-known American suffragist named Alice Paul. Um, and she, uh, she's a very interesting figure for a lot of reasons, but I think um, very importantly, you know, given the context of this discussion, um, she learned a lot about feminism in the UK, um, even though she was American, um, she was raised Quaker, which meant that there was a lot of gender egalitarianism in her culture and in her community. Um, and I think like a lot of, you know, women who are, you know, middle class or white or, you know, from like economically secure backgrounds, she had that very enduring sense of like, well, I can do whatever I want, like the sexes are equal. And then when she left her very sheltered community, she realized that most women could not do what she did. And most women couldn't pursue certain, you know, avenues to either support themselves or have an education or what have you. And so that was very um like formative for her to have that realization. And I feel like I, I, I wanted to include that very intentionally because I think for a lot of, you know, women in my own life who I've been educated with or have worked with, they also had moments like that where they just assumed, you know, oh, like I, I can vote and work in this office and wear pants. So everything's fine. <laughs> um, and then, you know, they become more sensitive and privy to the fact that like in the event that they did have a baby, they would probably be, um, discriminated against, you know, in terms of like job opportunities, or, you know, if they did want to work in a certain male dominated field, they would probably be harassed, you know, within an inch of their life and not want to stay. Um, but for uh, Alice Paul, specifically, one of the things that she learned and took with her from the British suffragists was this idea of optics and like playing to optics. Um, she very famously met um, Sylvia Pankhurst, who is a very prominent British um, suffragist. And uh, for Alice and her home, and especially her faith, the the women who she grew up with, her, her mother very specifically, you know, everything about suffrage was very, like, quiet and demure and kind of hid away, you know, like women meeting in parlor rooms and talking about ways that they could, you know, either petition or, you know, try and sway public opinion. When Alice Paul went to the UK, Sylvia Pankhurst and many of her colleagues were um, screaming on street corners and breaking windows, throwing things. Um, and that was part of the strategy to get arrested, to get in newspapers, to get as much visual attention to suffrage as possible. So Alice, when she came back to the U.S., uh, really internalized that. And her way of envisioning that was a really prominent um, 1913 parade for suffrage, which was, um, I think in some ways, you know, it, it was supposed to be a parade, which I think is very telling in terms of like the optics and the dynamics that were there, but they were marching all the way to the White House. And the idea was that they were, you know, inviting a lot of members of the press. They were going to present in this very optically optimized way. Um, and one of the ways Alice Paul envisioned this was, you know, a very sort of homogenized aesthetic for marching in this parade. Um, the women, you know, who were front and center were very young, they were thin, they were able-bodied, they were white, um, they were middle class or, you know, aspired to be or passing as middle class in this particular capacity. And they were also very conventionally gorgeous. <laughs> um, and Alice and her colleagues knew exactly what they were doing in terms of, you know, getting those women photographed, getting them in the newspaper, but also very tactfully exporting this idea that, you know, when you 
think of suffrage, these are the women you're supposed to think of. These very conventionally feminine, white um, women who aspire to be mothers, who aspire to be wives. And when you don't support suffrage, you're not supporting these young, gorgeous women who, you know, it kind of plays, I think, to American paternalism, right? Like, this is your daughter, you know, this is like the women you see, you know, who have grown up in your neighborhood. Why would you not want to support suffrage? But as I track in the book, you know, that became very complicated in terms of women who did not fit that profile, um, asking if they could participate in the suffrage parade. And, you know, as I go into detail, um, it really blew up, but also made a lot of sentiments about white feminism very known. And what you do very effectively in the book, I feel, is you draw a straight line from that, the gorgeous suffrage of suffragettes in the parade to feminist influencers on Instagram (laughs) and it's very very effectively done in the book tell us a bit more about that oh thank you that means a lot to me um well I think uh per you know what we just discussed I think that white feminism's adherence to how things present PR um engaging with you know consumerism and capitalism and marketing and being really palatable and um uh, enticing, uh, carries through, you know, now in what, you know, some people call the the fourth wave. Um, I do mention in the book, and I think it's worth saying here, that wave is a very contested term in feminist history and, and politics and, and dialogues for, you know, all types of reasons. Um, one of the biggest being that it, it kind of collapses, you know, a lot of movements into one homogenized ideology. And so I um, conceded to it in terms of like time and place. And also, you know, that's the language that historians use. But I think it's a complicated term. Um, But that's all to say that in what some people call the fourth wave, this um, uh, adherence to images and images being very enticing, click worthy, you can't look away, you want to engage with it. It does fit a very sort of Instagram friendly uh, terrain in that you're um, positioning yourself in a certain way to, you know, not only gain eyeballs, uh, which I don't think is like, you know, a unique strategy in any sort of activism, but that, you know, you're adhering to still very specific ideas of gender and like performing your gender in a certain way so that it's palatable for capitalism, marketing, other companies, um, and, you know, branding opportunities. And I think that's a through line from the white feminism of, you know, 1913, 1914, 1915 as well, um, in that a lot of those women and suffrage organizations, you know, they partnered with brands like Macy's and declared it the headquarters for suffrage. Um, This whole idea that you, you know, buy your politics as as a feminist, that you buy, like, feminist AF shirts and, you know, nevertheless, she persisted tote bags and all those things. That's not new. Um, The white feminists of, you know, the turn of the century ish, uh, they pioneered this idea that you support suffrage by buying like votes for women sashes and like suffrage valentines and luggage tags and hats and things like that. So I think that's a key place where the Instagram influencer, quote unquote, really overlaps with white feminism um, in that you're looking to ascend within the specific system. You're not really looking to challenge it. Now, I find that so interesting. I mean, also, so I'm, you know, coming more from, sort of, I guess, financial journalist and has written about economics. And I find that fascinating how I mean for women the role of consumer is almost the only kind of role in the formal economy that women are encouraged to Mm -hmm. take 
And also it's the oldest kind of economic power that women had. I mean, before it's natural that they would encourage people to buy things to show their support to suffrage because they couldn't vote to show their support to yeah. suffrage because they didn't have the vote. Women had consumer power before they had, you know, most other forms of, of power. And, and that sort of stayed with us and stayed with the women's movement and got exploited. And then we have this, you know, very problematic movement when feminism became a brand. But I mean, even Selfridges in London, the big department store on Oxford Street, that was, I mean, when that first opened, it was the it was like a feminist language around that, that this was a space mm. for women. And if you mm. go back and read that, that's it sounds a bit like, you know, when they opened the wing or or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> the store is the safe place for women. And um, yeah, and it's just interesting that the the space of shopping and consumerism has been that for so long. And yeah, it's, it's a good point in the book. But then why did, I mean, when would you say that white feminism was the strongest, like, you know, if you're going to do a graph? <laughs> um, you know, I think that white feminism, uh, especially coming off the research of this book and, and looking at it, you know, through these different time periods and going through archival stuff, white feminism is very good at adapting with the times. And I think that's because it always has this really strong consumerism element, you know, where like it's able to ingratiate itself in whatever kind of the the linguistics of the time are or wherever the you know culture is um because it really chases you know and money um and it's very you know flexible in its goals <laughs> because it is chasing ultimately that um so I, I don't think i can really say one period was you know stronger than the other i mean i do feel um you know in my own lifetime this very sort of like post lean in period, um, especially given, you know, that I was working in a lot of outlets that promoted these narratives of women's rights, and that, you know, I had to go to all these empowerment conferences and cover them. Um, it has felt, you know, very, very salient in in my own life, um, especially as I've watched, you know, like a lot of feminist thinkers, you know, who I've studied and read, you know, like Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde, and like these very critical thinkers about gender in this country, uh, I get into this a little bit in the book, but, you know, when I was in college, you know, those were very formative texts that I read as a very young person, like 18, 19 years old. And I read them in, in you know, these very like academic formats or like, you know, on the floor of like my professor's homes and things like that. And it was very surreal to then you know, graduate, become a professional adult, work, and then see like Audre Lorde quotes on like Pinterest memes. <laughs> um, and how surreal that was in terms of, you know, how I come to somebody like Audre Lorde and how I think about her work and her canon and the way that she was so critical of, of capitalism, specifically as a, as a feminist and as a black lesbian feminist. Um, and so I, I feel like that shift, you know, while it's kind of white feminism per usual, um, that happened pretty quickly. You know, when I look back on my own life in terms of like texts I was reading and then all of a sudden it's in like a marketing campaign, you know, like five years later. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, and I think that that shows in the book, and that's why what I what I why I started with saying that I think you are the perfect person because you you've literally been to all of these empowerment conferences. <laughs> At least that's that was the feeling I I got. We didn't really have all of those in, in Sweden in the same way, but uh, but you you you've been there for for all of us. So. <laughs> 
Another thing, I mean, when I read the book, and this could just be me coming from economics because I felt that you, what you do a lot is sort of, you know, criticise contemporary feminism for forgetting about, you know, the economic aspects or who's got the money or these type of power relations. And obviously, you know, I love that a lot because that's something that, you know, I've, I've always felt that, you know, it has to... I mean, you cannot have feminism without, you know, criticizing or trying to change the economic system because obviously it's built on the oppression on women. It's built on the oppression of, you know, not just women, but and but if you start seeing the oppression of women, then you know you start seeing the other things and 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 it's not it's you know if you don't, then it's this inbuilt tension that you're saying oh, women are are worth the same, but then that's not the reality of you know what's going on in the economy. Is that a correct reading of the book that you want to sort of, you know, bring the money discussion, the economic discussion back in? Oh, absolutely. And again, that means a lot coming from you and your background. (laughs) Um, I feel like a lot of what, um, and I don't really mean this with, you know, regards to like institutions, you know, where I've been or, you know, places I've worked, but like just in my own reading, you know, as somebody who interprets feminism and is interested in gender, economics is is always what you're actually talking about in in a lot of senses you know when you're talking about like equal pay or pregnancy discrimination or you know um labor of the home or like stay-at-home moms or like all these um especially in in the united states these like weird tropes we have to understand uh gender something i've become just like really incensed about in my own country and actually in in certain um websites that I've worked for, I've like banned this term is that, you know, I don't, I've, I've always bristled at the, you know, women who don't work like Mm -hmm. as a shorthand for stay-at-home parents and specifically stay-at-home mothers. Um, I just find it to be such a, uh, deeply misogynistic, uh, terminology that I think really stems from the lack of economic awareness when we're talking about like labor and women and like who because obviously women have always worked. So yeah. Yeah. Women have always worked and women have always, um, done all this labor that nobody sees or values in the traditional sense of the economy. And I have really resented in my own lifetime, and, you know, covering this resurgence of like, you know, women pursuing leadership positions and like making all this money and, you know, having all these corporate roles, which I feel like is like one tier of, you know, how you can understand or metabolize feminism. And yet, you know, in the same token, these are self-identified feminists who mock, you know, women who quote unquote don't work. And, I, and I've always been like very sensitive to that. Um, and I feel like a lot of, especially the conversations we have in the United States broadly, the stay-at-home mom versus working moms trope is like not helpful for understanding the economic infrastructures that keep women in these like very specific roles, you know, whether it is like having to, you know, leave their children with, you know, a low income domestic worker to be able to pursue that work. Or if like the woman herself, you know, has to stay home and take care of her babies, do all the laundry, cook all the food um, so that her partner, assuming she even has one, can, you know, economically support the family. So I feel like um, economics has always been a very, very big part of feminism, but I think it's really telling that economics has never been a part of white feminism. (laughs) I mean, white feminism has basically achieved this huge economic shift in the global economy where women, you know, getting, you know, leaning in, getting into these positions, somebody still has to look after 
the home and the children, which has then, you know, that is the driving force behind, you know, big immigration waves and, you know, really complicated chains of care with sort of women of, you know, not non-white women and women of color most often, you know, moving, you know, to, to get these jobs. And it's like, it's a whole complicated economy caused by this, which is completely invisible in the whole discourse of, of, of white feminism. And, you know, you show that very well. Um, so I love I love bringing the the economics back in. Do, are you are you hopeful? Do you feel this is happening? I mean, you wrote this book. I mean, there's a lot of discussions now. I mean, and I know in the U.S. about the the she session about women losing their their jobs in the in the pandemic and unpaid care work. Obviously, is a is a big discussion. Then you know this summer with Black Lives Matter. Do you feel that? I mean, when exactly did you write the book and how do you feel about, you know, what's been going on since? I actually finished the book and handed it in right before COVID struck. <laughs> um, it was like February of last year, actually. And um, then, you know, things started shifting very quickly towards the end of February. We started getting more information. And then by like early March, um, it became apparent that, you know, there was a pandemic happening, things were shutting down, you know, that sort of thing. And my editor, who is a genius and brilliant woman, um, Michelle Herrera Mulligan, she wrote back to me and was like, oh, like, this belongs in the book, like, you need to incorporate this, because she and I both, you know, in looking at how this was going to be, and even seeing, you know, what, uh, what was being defined as an essential worker, you know, in the United States, and being on the other side of that, it just became very apparent very quickly how this was going to fall across both gender and race. And so um, she was able to buy me some time so that I could very quickly rewrite whole chunks of the book to incorporate COVID in such a way that would reflect my own gender analysis. Um, I think in terms of, you know, what is happening in the United States, I am, um, the term I've been using is cautiously optimistic in that, you know, unlike so many other countries, um, the U.S., you know, does not have federal paid leave for, you know, per parents or even like taking care of elders or like special needs. Um, you know, we don't have universal or really even subsidized child care. Like the American parent is really on their own in, in this country. And as I've done, you know, more research and written more about, you know, women in other parts of the world, it really is um, particularly egregious in the United States. And I'm hoping that, you know, since so many uh, specifically white collar women have been home, and as you just said, you know, many of them have either been laid off or have had to leave their jobs because they have to basically take over um, you know, homeschooling for their children, in addition to like all the food that needs to be prepared, the cleaning, you know, everything. I'm hoping that this pandemic will be a real sort of shift in how American families think about the labor in their lives and also how much it takes to get your children, you know, cared for in front of a screen, who has to, you know, teach them, then what they do when school is over, <laughs> the snacks they need, the the dishes that need to be washed, all of that. Um, because the the narrative, especially the mainstream feminist narrative in my country, 
um, probably for the past like 15 years has been the shorthand of quote unquote outsource. Mm -hmm. So there isn't even say like a domestic laborer, a nanny, um, you know, a house cleaner, you just outsource everything. And you and really invisible. Click on your phone. And, yeah. And, and then tech company that sends them to your house and they're, and you yeah. see them, right? It's so I think, remote control for. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that for, you know, uh, a new generation of women who, you know, might identify as feminists and use that term, I feel like this issue of labor has never been dealt with. And I feel like the ways in which they've almost been indoctrinated into mainstream feminism has facilitated that blindness. So I am hoping that the pandemic will give more Americans a more holistic understanding of labor, so much so that, you know, allegedly when, you know, many of us do get vaccinated and then, you know, are leaving our homes in, in some capacity, whatever that looks like, we don't necessarily go back into these institutions as they were. And also that we put appropriate pressure on our government, which, you know, has really neglected us in, in COVID. I feel like um, there's ample conversation around this already, but I think, you know, in um, like five, six years, I'm going to be looking forward to reading like the big nonfiction books about the American government neglect, you know, during COVID in terms of deaths, but also the endangerment to children, schools, teachers, you know, who have been exposed, like that sort of thing. Um, but I do find myself uh, getting frustrated with a lot of the narratives that you've just cited about. Um, I actually, I just wrote an op-ed for Time about this, like shortly before my book came out, there was this like really um, homogenized narrative, uh, you know, being built out by a number of mainstream publications. It wasn't even, you know, specific to a certain area in the U.S. that COVID was, quote unquote, setting back feminism. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't agree with that uh, fundamentally. I either. I think you saying that, yeah. Yeah, I, do, I don't agree with that. I think that when, you know, we use terms like that to describe what is happening, that really betrays a white feminist ideology in that feminism is only being engaged by women having these white collar, you know, leadership positions. That is the only metric for feminism. And, you know, coincidentally, and I, and I, and I said this and cited this in the op-ed, a number of, you know, women who are house cleaners in the United States, um, who uh, many of them are mothers, they have young children, many of them have not been able to pay like rent or their mortgages in, in six months, you know, and have lost their sole income, especially to support their families. And that's not being shorthanded as like setting back feminism. <laughs> Um, so that, those are, I think, a summary of just my hopes for the pandemic, but also things that I'm seeing that are not helpful, you know, when people are trying to understand this through gender and labor. So have you followed just things that happened in the last year? I don't know if you've followed New Zealand, the discussion there about equal pay versus pay equity, because I think that ties in with white feminism, the way you describe it, because traditionally we, we, we talk about equal pay so it's like in this am I making as much in my white collar job as the man sitting next to me at the hedge fund where I work and rights and you know legislation and everything is set up with that comparison you compare people in the same job so in New Zealand now they've moved from that principle to to the principle of pay equity instead which is not equal equal pay for the same job, but equal pay for, for work of the same value. And suddenly that makes 
these sectors of the economy, for example, domestic work, care work, low-wage women visible, because they are often in areas of the economy where there are hardly any men, there are hardly right. any, any white women even. Uh, so there's no sort of male wage to compare them to. So anti-discrimination legislation is not available. But if you suddenly start saying, well, look, why isn't a care worker paid as much as a corrections officer, which they did on New Zealand, and you start comparing, do you, do you know what I mean? It's, it's a different yeah. principle, which I think gets to a lot of the things that you're talking about as well, and suddenly makes in anti-discrimination, like a care worker on New Zealand sued for the, you know, the fact that she wasn't paid as much as a prison guard and won. And this led to sort of pay increases and, you know, the prime minister changing the law. So I see, I see these things being quite hopeful, this, you know, that it's not just this going away from this very individualistic, you know, me and the guy next to me at the, at the bank, are we earning the same? I, I haven't followed that, but immediately after we finish this talk, I'm going to go look that up because that yeah, sounds really fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, and I, I, I'm really in awe of, you know, these economic models that shift conversations like that. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that has allowed white feminism to flourish um, in the United States is this very individualized narrative that is, you know, about money, but sometimes it really extends even beyond money and that you're really only supposed to think about yourself. Um, and, and white feminism has really latched on to, I think, that deeply American narrative and then like branded it as somehow feminist in that, to your point, you're only supposed to think about you and then like the man sitting next to you. You're not even, you know, as a white collar woman supposed to think about the other white collar women <laughs> who maybe have a similar job to you. You're not supposed to think about, you know, the cleaning women who come into the office after you leave and, you know, work in this space as well. Like you're really only supposed to think about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so something like that sounds very very fascinating. And I also wonder, you know, what the capacity for something like that could be in the United States, um, you know, given that there, there isn't even any visibility for the women who do work, you know, that's not white collar. No, exactly, exactly. And also the way we define the rights as equal pay is shaped by, you know, who was in the movement and who had a voice within the movement at the time and that, you know, we're college educated white you know women primarily but before we we let uh, people in here um we've talked a lot about economics i'm sorry i'm sort of hugging you because there's, there are other themes in the book as well the future is not female it's gender fluid let's let's talk about that Sure. And I want to, I'm happy to talk about the economic parts of the book. Especially no, but I want to sell the book right background. as well. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, to clarify what Katrine just said, um, a, a mantra that has been very big in the United States, and I see that it's been exported elsewhere, um, is, you know, quote unquote, the future is female. And I track in the book, you know, the historical origins of that phrase and where it actually comes from. It actually has a deeply radical um, uh, lesbian history in the United States, and then how it went mainstream, and then, you know, found itself on like t-shirts that you can buy. And then, you know, especially in, my, in um, the latter part of my career, the future is female became like it lost all its elasticity in terms of it was used as a shorthand to quantify anything that was remotely female and positive. <laughs> so if you were talking about, you know, 
the number of women in leadership positions in like the tech industry, the future is female. If you're talking about increased, you know, awareness for rape culture, the future is female. Um, if you're talking about, you know, uh, all top hypothetical 50 pop songs in the United States being sung by women, the future is female. <laughs> like it just started to not really mean anything. Um, and uh, specifically in in my life and then like newsrooms that I sat in and how I watched that phrase be adapted in a lot of like headlines. Um, I started to notice that, you know, when it comes to like non-binary people or two-spirit people or gender variant people, the, the, the future as female was being used to affirm a gender binary rather than question it or reinterpret it. So to give you an example, um, one one publication I cite that's in the notes, they had like, you know, five different like cisgender um, female cover stars, all like actresses, like very famous people. And, it you know, the, the tagline for the issue was like the future is female. Um, but where that kind of falls in on itself, you know, aside from just a trend is like, yeah, you know, if you look at especially economic data, um, you know, women who are cisgendered, who are conventionally feminine, um, who, you know, are able to achieve some sort of job security because of the way they present and perform gender. Yeah, they're very influential and pretty and make a lot of money for themselves and the companies that they work for. This is not like a breaking <laughs> um, analysis. But, you know, to my assessment, especially, you know, having done so much research in the book about like queer movements and trans movements and like dyke march in, in the United States, you know, if we're talking about like, having, you know, affordable housing, being food secure, um, you know, really a basic standard of living, that future is not female, that future, which would hopefully be protected by like policy and legislation, that future is gender fluid in which, you know, a non-binary person can live in a certain place affordably and also maintain their job because of, you know, federal employee protections for um, people who are trans or, you know, anywhere underneath that umbrella. So it's a very, like, I think I say this in the book, like it's the perfect case study in white feminism in terms of, you know, that phrase when it started to kick around in the 70s, that was a deeply radical thing to say. And what the women who were, you know, ultimately expressing when they used a term like that was very different than how that term ended up on a T-shirt, which you can then buy and then like go to an empowerment conference in which, you know, a gender binary is being affirmed. And that is white feminism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a question here from Jasmine. So, I mean, and other people, if you have questions, even, you know, please ask them in, in the in the chat. Jasmine is asking, you know, about some people, organizations, and resources with a feminist focus that don't ascribe to white feminist tendencies that you suggest for for people. Oh, which part of the world is Jasmine in? <laughs> yeah, where where are you, Jasmine? <laughs> Um, um, I, I would say, broad, yeah, I would say broadly, you know, I, I think what's a good, um, sort of like threshold check. And I, and I've talked about this a lot on, on book tour too, since, you know, I am talking to people who live very far from me and don't necessarily, you know, know the same things, uh, or recognize the same organizations that I do. Oh, and NYC. Okay. Um, I would start with kind of like Katrina and I have said earlier, organizations that concern themselves with a basic standard of living, 
Um, I, I used to live in New York for 10 years. And so for instance, like my wife and I have always made a point to support a number of, um, queer, uh, homeless centers in New York, um, specifically because a lot of, I think the, um, gay rights progress in my own country has, um, while been, you know, very beneficial to people like me and, you know, a lot of people who I was educated with, it is very class infused. And so for the queer kids who are gender non-conforming and to this day, like live on the Chelsea piers and, you know, were kicked out by their parents um, and are homeless, like, you know, looking out and seeing necessarily like a, you know, a white cis man who's gay with his partner having like a big lavish wedding isn't really doing a lot for their circumstances in which they live. So um I've always made a point to support the center, um, which as far as I know is still active. Um, I also donate to Ali Forney, which I highly recommend. Um, and there's a number of other specifically queer homeless um, shelters and like resources that I think when I interpret, you know, gender movements or feminism, like those are organizations that are working towards, you know, making sure people have basic standards of living. And the reason that they don't have them is because of their gender and the way that they perform gender. Mm -hmm. There's also a question from Alison around, you know, why, if I interpreted correctly, why you chose to start with the, uh, with the suffragettes. Excuse me. The stuff earlier history has been going on for a long time, you know. Why? Yeah. Yeah. I I chose them, um, and I think there's a, an important distinction to make here. So at least in in my country, historians, you know, define the um, suffragists who I start with, like the Alice Paul and those people. Those are considered modern you know, su suffrage. And then in the late 1800s, there's what historians refer to as radical suffrage. So that's more like for people who know, that's like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, those ladies. Alice Paul came a generation after. Um, I started with what historians call modern suffrage because that was the first time that the um, suffrage or any sort of like gender, you know, mainstream movement in, in the United States partnered with consumerism. And to my assessment, that is a very big part of how white feminism operates, but also what it strives to do and how it continues to evolve is through partnering with consumerism and buying. And, you know, there's a lot written, some of which I include, you know, about like Elizabeth Cady Stanton's politics. But also, I think it's, it's worth pointing out that, you know, as white women, um, they ran up against white supremacy in very scary ways for challenging that system. And then also, you know, as white women, not performing their gender a certain way, you know, they were supposed to be okay with um, uh, you know, black people being incarcerated unjustly. They were supposed to be okay with low-income black workers. They were supposed to be okay with segregation. And I think that's a big part of how not just white feminists, but I feel like white women in general in the United States are told to perform gender is to, you know, look away from homeless people on the street and to, you know, be, um, uh, sort of removed from a lot of these very intense moments against power. Um, and these were women who refused to do that. Mm -hmm. So there's a question about the, again, the, the title of the memoir that you mentioned. Oh, today again. Um, let's see. I don't have it in the shelf immediately behind me. Um, Mab Seagrest. Uh, she wrote, 
I can run to the other room and get it. Run. I run. I got it. Okay. <laughs> Somehow there must be, you know, it must be possible to send send that out. Like, I think to the list. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's available in in the UK. She published it last year in the United States, and she's still alive, which is also incredible. Um, yeah, yeah, it's oh, memoirs of a race trader. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Exactly. I recommend okay. it. Thank last you, Amy. Question, which is a uh, a big question, so we can have a short, short answer. Is the relationship between, I mean, you go into this in the book, is the relationship between, you know, white feminism and transphobia or in, in the ways that sort of transphobia is, is part of white feminism? And Priscilla is asking if you could speak to that because it's a, you know, you're familiar with what's happened here in the in the UK with around J.K. Rowling and the rise of sort of... Turf transphobic views I'd say I mean as a Swede I'm not sure I completely understand the UK context but you know if you could you know you do talk about transphobia as part of white feminism in the book if you'd speak to that yeah well I think that um in the U.S. specifically um there is a long history of you know cis women having very specific spaces, claiming them to be, you know, feminist spaces. And then, you know, trans women are not allowed in them. Um, and it, it to me, reveals, you know, a, a really, um, you know, unnuanced look at gender uh, in terms of, again, a system that oppresses a lot of marginalized genders, you know, whether that's like a cis woman, a non-binary person, a trans woman, a trans man, a gender queer person, um, the ways in which, you know, we are told to exist in our genders and the space we are supposed to put between them disenfranchises a lot of people. But, um, you know, particularly in like the second wave in the US, you can see this a lot. And then I think, you know, in like the, you know, turf rhetoric that is resurfacing a lot online, um, the commonality for a lot of those women is biology. And I think that's very revealing about their understandings of feminism and that they have to be very biologically based and not necessarily, again, a system that keeps marginalized genders in a certain capacity. Thank you for listening to this passionate and insightful discussion. I wish to thank Koa for sharing her research and personal experiences and Katrine for her expert contribution and incisive questions. Visit our website, liberia.io, for news of future events and book recommendations. 